Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Yo, 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 what's up, my fellow trash pandas? What the heck is a trash panda? Fellow trash pandas uh, unite. Trash pandas of the world unite. Yeah, so Dan, a trash panda, it's really cute. It's adorable, but it's garbage. So <laughs> my friends have lovingly taken to calling me trash panda. Because I'm cute and lovable, but garbage. <laughs> well, on your video here, it says you're a Deegan princess. And I think that probably means something very similar. But hey, Melton Demir is from CoinShares. We got Rick Heitzman from First Mark Capital. I'm Dan Nathan. This is OK Computer. Um, stick around. We're going to hit a bunch of stuff as it relates to tech and crypto. We also have an interview. Rick and I sit down with Amir Halim, the CEO, co-founder of Helium. Welcome, guys, to OK Computer. Hey, how's it going, Trash Pandas? Well, we're not going to steal that from you, Meltem. So you are in parts unknown out west. I think you're on some sort of ski holiday this winter because every time I look up on your Twitter, you are somewhere on a slope on a different continent. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a holiday. So what I do is when you're on the West Coast, you can wake up at 4 or 5 a.m., work four or five hours, go out, ski five or six hours, come back and do some more work. So it's been nice. And then I'm doing uh, Twitter spaces in a little bit. Like I just do it on the chairlift. Stop it. Really? Yeah, you can multitask. So jealous. Wow. You are an audio queen. There's no doubt about it. I saw that you tweeted out, you're going to be hosting CoinShares quarterly report next week over spaces. How have you chosen to do that? Because it's really interesting from a corporate standpoint, there's very few companies that are choosing to do that and take questions from what you might call the peanut gallery. You guys have made a very concerted effort to be a bit more inclusive, I guess. So we do the normal investor relations process. We release our report at 8 a.m. at market open. We do our formal IR call at 10 a.m. It's a little bit more scripted. We do it through the NASDAQ markets platform and it's transcribed and we publish that transcript in several languages. So we still do the normal IR process. But for us, at the end of the day, we are a crypto company. We realize the majority of conversations in our industry are happening on crypto Twitter. And so for us doing the AMAs a few hours after our quarterly earnings, and we do an internal town hall in between where we just have an employee combo with our 100 employees, doing the Twitter spaces has been really fun because that's our core audience. At the end of the day, what we've realized is JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs are going to be the JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs of the crypto space. And at the end of the day, our core audience and where we win, the reason I like the name DGen Princess, we're catering not only to institutions, but DGens are becoming institutions. There are firms in the crypto space who command more capital than their traditional FISERV counterparts. The wealth in the crypto space far exceeds the wealth in the TradFi space. So we need to go to where our audiences, and that's here on this beautiful platform. Platform called Twitter. So we've made a concerted effort to do a lot more Twitter spaces. You're actually going to see a lot more from us on the research side as well. We've expanded our research team materially and we're just 
really excited to have this new medium. And I do think at the end of the day, we're going to see more and more companies leveraging social to interact directly with the peanut gallery. Because at the end of the day, investing is entertainment. Retail can move market sentiment among institutions. We saw this with the rise of, you know, the the Reddit investing memes. And I think this trend is going to continue to evolve and shift. Being online, being a part of meme culture, being a part of the conversation is so important. Yeah, I think the internet's letting everybody go direct. And I think a lot of the best companies, a lot of the best investment managers are just saying, I don't need these intermediaries. I want to go direct and have a relationship with my investors, my community, and everybody out there. What's the best thing you learned as you've kind of been a pioneer in this space? I think the biggest thing we've learned, Rick, is that people's perception of what we do is very different (laughs) from what we actually do. So it's actually helped highlight where we can improve how we communicate message. It's also helped highlight what people are actually finding useful and insightful about what we put out there. So it's helped us be much smarter about where we allocate our marketing spend and our comm spend. I think a lot of companies on the corporate comm side have not innovated at all. It's very stale. It's very formulaic. And there's this divide between the exco and the unwashed masses. And in my view, our exco should be out there talking to the people of the internet. That's our audience. Not only guys in Boston wearing Dockers. You should be talking to everybody. Are you wearing Dockers right now, Rick? No, I'm not in Boston. I'm not wearing Dockers. Fortunately, I don't do much of either. Hopefully you are wearing slacks of some kind. (laughs) Of some kind. I'm in my office. They'd kick me out if I didn't. It's really interesting, though, that you just said we want to use these means in which to not be disintermediated, go straight to your audience. And obviously, Twitter, very centralized platform. Before we heard about DeFi and NFTs, we heard about DApps, decentralized internet. We haven't really gotten there because if you think about the way these communities are being built right now for Web3, they're on Discord, they're on Twitter, they're on these very centralized platforms. Is that something that's not going to happen anytime soon? Because these platforms are really important to connect and create community. I think if I may, one of the issues with dApps and some of the language here is precisely that. It's the language and the syntax and the positioning. Anytime new tech emerges, it's always really difficult to try to create a narrative arc, especially when it's unlike things we've seen before. But I think a better way of describing dApps is not by using the word decentralization. Really what we're talking about here with crypto and Web3 and this whole movement is platformless applications. The idea is today when you interact with apps, and so many apps are becoming quote-unquote super apps, what you have is a closed ecosystem of applications that operate on a closed platform that's owned by a company. And the disappearance of the RSS feed, which initially really was the start of the platformless web, every company pretty much at this point has gotten rid of the RSS feed, which is what enabled people to pull data out of these platforms and surface them in third-party independent applications. What Web3, what blockchains are doing is they're enabling people to build platformless applications, and they're enabling people to interact with a universal platform layer that's an open protocol. So we started with protocols for money. The protocol for money was Bitcoin. Then we got a protocol for financial computation, that's Ethereum. Now we have protocols for file storage, decentralized identity, data indexing, data querying, a variety of different things. Wireless internet like Helium. Exactly, right? And now we're looking at energy storage, energy management, energy distribution. And effectively what we're doing, right, if you think about the OS model and the role that the OSI model has played in the advent of Web 1 and Web 2, we're effectively building an OSI model for a variety of different services outside of the compute space. But I think conceptualizing Web 3 as platformless applications 
is just a much more logical articulation. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it. You don't need a blockchain to do it, by the way. The blockchain just enables you to distribute the economics and the governance in a new way. I think we're still at the early stages of figuring out where you need the security guarantees that a blockchain provides. But I think in some specific instances, if what you're doing is at high value, using a centralized database is fine, or using public internet architecture is fine. But I think there are really compelling cases where particularly with censorship resistance and monetary incentives, having a public permissionless layer where the network is secured by economic weight of the chain is really valuable attribute to have. But again, I think DAP versus platformless application, I think for a lot of people, the platformless application narrative just makes a lot more sense, just because we already feel the constraints of being limited to Twitter's walled garden or Google's walled garden and not being able to interact with all of this data and energy that we've put into building out our infrastructure in these very limited domains and spaces. All right, here's one for Rick, talking about wall gardens and talking about Twitter here. I think it's really interesting. Twitter its stock went public in late 2013 at $27. The stock is trading today at $36. It's down 55% from its all-time highs made last year. It's got a $29 billion market cap. If I look at coin market cap, I see Solana with a $32 billion market cap. The stock has gone nowhere in 10 years, although it's a really important centralized platform here. And I think it's really interesting. Last week, they announced that they're going to do a $2 billion accelerated share repurchase and another $2 billion behind it. Rick, I got to ask you, man, this is such an important platform. Its market cap is basically a rounding error for most of the mega cap tech names. If you're going to put it in coin market cap, it's not even basically in the top 10. Is the company, which I think the service is amazingly irrelevant, the company is becoming less so. Why are they buying back their own stock that way? What else should they be buying with that $2 billion right now? I actually hate stock buybacks. CEOs claim we're investing back in our company and we think this is the best use of capital because our stock is so cheap. I think that could be a reason if you're a mature company, but if you believe that you're an innovator, there's a million other ways that you could invest in your company, investing in great people, investing in great projects, doing disruptive M&A to provide more services on your platform. You got to think that there's a better way than just a financial transaction to buy back your stock. If they believe, and obviously Meltem's thinking about doing a Twitter spaces around that, is Twitter spaces a platform to have a conversational relationship with your stakeholders? And is there ways to create better infrastructure and better user experience for that as Twitter can become not only textual and to a certain extent video, but a better audio platform? Obviously, they took a run at Clubhouse, which probably you know, worked out for the best. But as you think about it, there has to be a better way to innovate than just buying back your stock in a financial transaction. And I would think that they should be pushing pushing very hard on the edges of their innovation to become a more holistic platform. And I think audio is a great place to go. Melton, let me ask you this. Jack Dorsey, obviously the founder, and he just left as CEO for his second stint late last year, huge Bitcoin maximalist. He's trying to integrate Bitcoin in all parts of his other company, Square. The stock didn't even rally on a $2 billion accelerated share repurchase if they had bought Bitcoin and put that on their balance sheet. That was a big 2021 story. Are you starting to see more U.S. corporates consider it? Bitcoin is flattish year over year. It obviously had a huge two-year run. And early in 2021, I know you and I were talking about it a lot when Tesla put it on its balance sheet. Are we going to start seeing more of that in 2022? 
I think the narrative around putting Bitcoin in your balance sheet has pretty much been exhausted at this point. That's an 18 months ago thing. Michael Saylor perfected that because he did it with leverage, right? He didn't spend a dollar of his own money. He basically turned his company into a de facto Bitcoin ETF and basically made a sweet deal for him and his exec team and his board to get paid a lot to do that. Sailor has perfected that. No one's going to be able to do it better. It's been done. I think the biggest thing that corporates need to be doing, if we look at earnings of crypto companies, my company was 70 people. We report 125 mil in Q3 cumulative EBITDA. We're generating a lot of cash per employee. Coinbase generating 1.5 to 2 bill in earnings per quarter. So I think if we look at the sheer amount of capital at play in this space, if we look at the profitability of platforms in the crypto space, the profitability per employee right now is 1 to 2 mil, if not closer to five mil. So I think the bigger play for corporates is how are you going to start playing in the crypto space? And that doesn't mean doing a bullshit announcement about some blockchain partnership. The partnership announcements need to stop. It doesn't mean buying a crypto punk or it doesn't mean doing some dumb metaverse collaboration. I'm talking about how are you actually going to allow your customers to interact with crypto? The margins that Coinbase is charging, 150 bips on the way in, 150 bips on the way out. I'd love to clip tickets like that. Rick, I'm sal- are you salivating at that number? I know. It's a great business. We have companies competing. Their margin is our opportunity. Exactly. But at the end of the day, it's a distribution game right now. And to the brave, to the willing, go the spoils. I don't see enough corporates having the chutzpah and the actual bravery to touch Bitcoin directly. By the way, I think one of the things that Block, aka Square, did that no one's talking about that's actually super brave and super transformative is they are allowing their 30 million users to interact with Lightning Network, right? Which is Bitcoin's layer two payments protocol. That's fire. They're going to be the first pushing into non-custodial wallets from a consumer perspective. So I think, again, the game, the stakes for corporates right now is how are you going to interact with crypto, not institutional crypto? Nobody's going to trade with you because you're going to suck at doing it. And you're not going to be able to do what our team can do on the market making side. So just stop. What they need to focus on is how are you going to offer crypto to consumers? You have a huge distribution channel. How are you going to change your distribution model to distribute financial products directly to your end consumers? And how are you going to clip a big fat margin in that process? I want to see more firms doing that, but they won't. Don't know how. They just don't. So let me ask you this, Meltem, because Twitter is now run by their former CTO, Parag Agarwal, and obviously Jack is a huge proponent, as you just mentioned, at least as it relates to Square for the Layer 2 Lightning Network. Why wouldn't they do something? They have 200 million plus. They're essentially wallets, if you will. You can accept Bitcoin at Twitter. Why wouldn't they do a deal and try to integrate that and create an NFT wallet? They've just created it so you can put... Why haven't you done that yet? Your Twitter avatar is not an NFT. I'm just curious. It would seem like that would be transformative for this company, the way that Mark Zuckerberg just laid out, I guess, this vision that they're going to be the metaverse company. But for Twitter, which really is just a mechanism to go back and forth with people and broadcast things, it seems like that would be a perfect idea for them to move into. I'm going to give a controversial take. I'm excited for it. Let's go. Shocking. This is a trash panda thing to do, Rick. Here's my controversial take. I think one of the reasons that Jack stepped down as CEO from Twitter is he's trying to espouse this view. His affinity for Bitcoin has a lot to do with censorship resistance, financial inclusion, and just permissionlessness in general. The issue is Twitter is the number one platform for censorship. There's a lot of political pressure on Twitter right now. Jack can't be the savior of thought boys all around the world if he is the CEO of a platform where he's forced to censor people, which is happening. Now, the CT who became CEO, like his 
blog post. The second day he was CEO, he put out a blog post around censoring people on Twitter. And so again, I think there is a very real issue here. Twitter is a centralized company. It has an executive team. It's publicly listed. There are many points at which pressure can be applied to Twitter, and they're not immune to that. I think Twitter is already a platform where there is a lot of censorship. Same with Facebook. I put something on Instagram the other day about public company earnings and my post got flagged as misinformation. The censorship is very real. So I think for Jack, it's very difficult to push his narrative when he is directly responsible for creating a platform that is a very big part of censorship culture. Yeah, but Block is the same thing from a financial standpoint. They're probably censoring. But no one's figured that out, Dan. Block isn't going to testify in front of Congress. I'm 100% in on the hot take. I think there's going to be increasing censorship as finally the government's coming around to this is an organizing principle. There's centralization. They have identity, as you said, Dan. What are people using these platforms for? And maybe we should lock that down. And if you want to be a free thinker and you want to be a thought leader, it's hard to be in charge of a lockdown platform organizing community, whereas Block has a different platform that people haven't caught on to yet. Talking about censorship resistance and pivoting a little bit, there are very few things that I've ever agreed with on Donald Trump, but one of them, the threat of shutting down TikTok in the US, I thought was really interesting. When you think about the way that the Chinese have basically blocked all of our social media companies and many of our financial companies from doing business in China. And I thought it was interesting after that Facebook report last week, Mark Zuckerberg, I think he said TikTok eight times or something like that. They kept referring to that. And so Ben Thompson of Stratechery tweeted this out. He said, it's absurd to tweet it, but the FTC really is suing an American company for eliminating competition while a Chinese company is eating their lunch. I'm just curious what you guys think, because the other thing that I would just mention, from a geopolitical standpoint, when President Xi and President Putin had each other's back at the Olympics, they made this joint statement, and we were getting ready to put all of these sanctions on Russia if they were to invade Ukraine. Well, are we doing enough as it relates to China? I wasn't a huge fan of the trade war, but when you think about trying to level the playing field, why is TikTok able to just operate with impunity here in the US and there's no Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, the list goes on and on in China. The government, again, is day late and a dollar short, and they're fighting a little bit of last week's or last year's or last decade's war in that I think Facebook was already facing challenges, was already facing privacy challenges, was already facing return on ad spend challenges before TikTok started eating their lunch. And for the first time in, I think, 20 years, Google was not the most popular app on the planet last month. It was TikTok. So the government is now dealing with what might have been more FTC issues from five or seven years ago today. And what they might have proactively dealt with on an acquisition of a WhatsApp or an Instagram, they're trying to re-legislate today, especially in a world where these centralized platforms are being used for political purposes. And I think that's not helping the battle that we should see going forward of, is there an imbalanced playing field where the Chinese can control their platforms, can keep our platforms out, while at the same time they're pushing their platforms with their own rules in the U.S.? We're not keeping up with the way the puck's going. We're kind of getting stuck in the past. If I can add to that, Rick, I think there's two other components here. I'll go ahead and again say something controversial. China's two greatest exports to the United States of America are TikTok, which is basically just attention sucking, lowering our productivity as a nation. And the second is Sentinel, 
Fentanyl is a huge crisis. And again, I think part of that is dynastic revenge for the opium wars potentially. But the two biggest exports are basically feeding our youth a steady diet of just absolute dog shit in their brains, which I think is hugely impacting their development and productivity and the aspirations of young people in this country. And then the fentanyl, which is having a huge impact on communities and families and people in a very devastating way. So that's one. The second is, if we look at Russia and China, what this really is about is the monetary supremacy of the US dollar. If you recall, Russia two years ago made a very bold move, and the bold move was this. They moved off the petrodollar. They moved to price all natural gas transactions in euros instead of dollars. China also followed suit. Really, what's unfolding in Ukraine and these sanctions spats between China, Russia, and the US is about battle for monetary supremacy, and it always has been. We used to live in a unilateral currency world where the US dollar was the global reserve currency. We are now moving into a multipolar currency world in which the renminbi through Belton Road, as well as the e-renminbi, the euro and Russia's embrace of the euro as its currency, the dollar, and now also, by the way, Bitcoin, like, holy F, can we talk about, <laughs> you know, Bitcoin? That, that You could say it. I respect Dan's platform. I'm not going to be a trash panda, Rick. This is the Dan centralized platform? Actually, Amanda holds the reins. If you guys don't know Amanda, don't let Dan's pretty face fool you. She's the real boss. Dan is a mere puppet. True. That's right. But I do think not to go back to monetary policy here, I think a large part of this war, it's really a proxy war being fought over currency supremacy. And at the end of the day, I think what the U.S. is completely unprepared to grapple with, and we see it with the just absolutely futile way it's attempting to regulate cryptocurrencies and Web3 and everything happening in my world, is the dinosaurs in Congress and the dinosaurs running this country just fundamentally cannot grasp the concept of a multipolar currency world and one in which U.S. Fed policy does not dictate the monetary regime operating in the rest of the world. They just cannot in their minds conceive it. And I think the Fed is on its way to irrelevance. We've seen it with the way they're fucking around with rates, right? Like they can't even make up their own minds. So we're going to look back on this last era of people waiting for words from Jay Powell's mouth, like it's papal bull from the mouth of the Vatican. <laughs> we're going to look at it and laugh. We're going to study it as a historic relic and think whatever was wrong with us. Melton, that's a good segue here. We saw the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield top 2% for the first time since the start of the pandemic. How do you think Bitcoin is trading? We have inflation expectations. You saw that CPI print for January at 7.5%. Basically, Bitcoin's had a nice rally over the last couple of weeks here, and that's as the fever pitch for increasing rate heights and CPI sticking at these levels in the high single digits. We saw Crypto very correlated to high valuation public tech over the last few months or so. How is it trading now? And give us a sense for how you think it goes for, let's say, the mid part of 2022. This is a great question when we talk about a lot internally as well. First and foremost, I would just like to go ahead and say the pandemic is over. Can we all agree the pandemic is over? Yes. Done. Yes. It's over. Check. So what's next? War. But Russia's de-escalating, so I don't know if we're going to get war. So what other crises do we have in our toolkit to keep people's attention occupied? Well, we'll manufacture some other crisis, I'm sure. Especially going into midterms. Yeah. Dems are roasted. 
They need a real good crisis. So what do we have here? So the issue is CPI print, as we know, is not really an effective measure, right? And Dan, we talked about this on an episode where we talked about the veracity of information. We talked about this in the past. So we have this environment where there's a lot of inflation. By the way, Bitcoin's been around for 13 years. Bitcoin has never been in this market environment before. I think one of the things we see with analysts and particular investment strategists is they'll look at two weeks of data or three weeks of data and they'll be like, oh, Bitcoin's correlated to macro. I'm like, Okay, trends take much longer than three weeks, cool down. So I think one of the things we have to sort of wait for is we've always talked about this macro environment in the Bitcoin space and Bitcoin really being designed for these conditions, but we've only been in these conditions for a very short period of time. So I think we can draw localized conclusions, but in terms of sort of longer term trends, very difficult to draw any definite conclusions just because the time frame is much too short. I do think what we're seeing is this narrative around Bitcoin as an inflation hedge continues to be a very relevant, salient narrative. I think the narrative around the hunt for yield is really relevant as well. I also think the traditional 60-40 portfolio has been decimated in this sort of environment. And the question is, what's going to be that 40 in your portfolio? What's going to be that 60 in your portfolio? And where does crypto fit? So I think overall, it's much too soon to tell. We are seeing a decorrelation, decoupling between Bitcoin and tech stocks, which I think is good. I think last two weeks where we saw SPY falling, Bitcoin rising, were sort of a good way to break the pattern. But again, it takes much more than two weeks of data <laughs> to show the trend. So jury's still out. I'm optimistic mystic but it's going to take a lot more. And frankly, I actually think what's happening in Canada with the trucker protests, what Trudeau is doing, basically advocating for a totalitarian dictatorship is what's happening here in the United States, right? Where we're seeing the earn it bills back in Congress. They're lobbying for unprecedented surveillance of all internet communications. America is basically moving to implement its own firewall, which will also effectively include all financial transactions. We see this with the new treasury bill demanding data on all interbank transactions over $600. The drag is tightening. And I think all that does, again, is push people towards an alternative. And the alternative that's here is Bitcoin. I think the US government is vastly overplaying its hand and underestimating the tools of the revolution that we've built over the last 13 years. And so I'm extremely optimistic. I think people are at the point where they just literally don't give a fuck anymore. I'm at that point personally. Nobody puts Deegan Princess in the corner. She is a brilliant macro mind. I've been telling people that for a while, and she might be a bit of a revolutionary. All right, before we get out of here, there's one other topic I wanted to hit, and I'll start with you, Rick. This was an op-ed in the information by Tomas Tungas. He is a managing director at Redpoint. You know our friends over at Redpoint, Satish, and my main man, Alex Bard here. This was an interesting one. Forget rate hikes. A shrinking Fed balance sheet is the real danger they're talking about for late-stage valuations. Tomas says, that obviously multiples coming in here. It's really tracking the NASDAQ. And just like Meltem just said, we actually haven't seen this sort of environment for a very long time. And Guy Adami says this all the time. If you're not supposed to fight the Fed when they're easing monetary policy, you might as well not do it on the other way around, especially when we haven't really been in this sort of environment for a while. What's your take on private market valuations? Will we continue to see them marked down? And what's the exit environment look like right now, Rick? There's kind of... Three parts of that question. I think you're right on not fighting the Fed. I think you're going to see 
inflation spike. And as Meldum said, that the Fed will overreact to that, causing a bunch of unintended consequences and a lot of volatility in the system. So you're going to see volatility, at least in the near term, at least through Q1 earnings. And that Q1 earnings tends to be a time where people set guidance. And guidance will take into account inflation as well as some of the employment issues that a lot of companies are facing. So we still have another six to eight weeks before we have a sense of what the rules of the road are. And without the rules of the road, it's awful hard for companies to get public. So we're now probably sitting in the middle of the fourth biggest dry spell of the last 13 years in terms of tech IPOs. We have companies who are in line to go public this year, in line to go public this quarter, who are getting caught in that traffic jam. And that traffic jam is saying, hey, we don't know what the re-rating is going to look like until we see Q1 earnings. We don't know what the new multiples are going to be until we get a sense of what the new cost of capital is going to be. So let's just pause and let's just think about some other things. The thing that really drives private company valuations are public company exits. So whether that's crossover funds, hedge funds who are involved in private companies, or even making people like me and Meltem earlier stage investors feel smart and confident are exits. So without those exits, especially large exits, which tend to be in the public market, you start to see a deflation, to use that word, one of the few times we'll use it in this podcast, a deflation of confidence in the early stage investing market. Therefore, what you're seeing is multiples contract first in the fourth quarter in the public markets. Then you're seeing a contraction in the crossover and growth markets in the first quarter. And it usually takes two to three quarters, although information asymmetry has increased that. So I think it's going to take six months or so for that multiple contraction to hit the private markets in the earlier stage markets. And we're seeing that across the board today. And we're seeing that 2022 pricing is much different than six to 12 months ago of 2021 pricing in the private markets. So that's the current environment. We think that the best companies are going to be able to execute through it. A lot of companies did the really smart thing in 2021 of taking what was cheap insurance, of being overcapitalized, having some excess cash, and building a fortress balance sheet when they could. And those companies are going to be able to sit through this chop and then be able to pick their spot of when to go public in back half of 22 as markets reopen, multiples are re-rated, and you're able to get a sense of, hey, what's a normal market environment looks like? So we're seeing just a general slowdown, probably healthy given what we've seen. But what do you see out there, Meltem? I was actually just going to ask you, Rick, one of the things we've been doing, I haven't really deployed very much capital over Q4, and I've been pretty cautious even in Q1. I guess I'd love to hear your perspective. There's so many new funds that have been raised, and as you know, as a manager, you don't get paid to sit on capital, you get paid to call and to deploy capital. So I think there's perverse pressure here for people to continue deploying, particularly people who've raised large funds. In my industry, we're still seeing a lot of deals getting done and just astronomical and frankly, mind-bending valuations. I'm seeing companies with $3 million in ARR raising a $2 billion valuation. And I just have to ask who's doing these deals because there's no way in my mind that I can make sense of it. But then I wonder if I'm just not getting it. Is my trash panda brain too small? Is there a bigger galaxy brain play here that I'm missing? Rick, what do you think? There is an overinflation of capital in the space and it has to get deployed for people to get paid. So what do we do? I think there is too much capital in a lot of spaces, but especially in tech and tech growth is that's been such an overperformer over the last decade. Rick, it's almost like when you print a fuckload of money, it's almost like things get really overinflated. Isn't that crazy? Amazing. And then you start giving people money and they spend it on stupid shit. Yeah. But corporations are so greedy. It's really their fault, you know? 
I'm sorry. This is a new idea. This new idea is coming out here on OK Computer. Just to kind of put a button on this conversation, I think in the crypto adjacent space, you're really seeing no slowdown in valuations. You're seeing ridiculous. And what Rick is seeing that's more geared towards the web two world, web two and a half, maybe, where things are more closely tied to the NASDAQ. And maybe that has something to do with scarcity. As you look at Web3, you're starting to see specific funds raised. And I think that ties into Meltem's point of if you have capital raised, especially specifically focused on crypto, blockchain, Web3, that capital has to be deployed. And if you raised a new fund in 2021, you can't sit on it in 2022. So you're seeing that distension in market values. And I think people who've been around for a little bit have credibility with their investors could say, we're not going to do stupid deals. Wait through the cycle, let the amateurs come in and make stupid mistakes and play the long game. And I think that's going to play out as we see 2022 and 23 unfurl. Well, listen, I get smarter every time I get the opportunity to talk to you guys and make no mistake about it. Meltem is not on a holiday. She is multitasking. So we really appreciate you coming to the mic. Rick, as always, great conversation. When we come back, we're going to have Amir Halim, he is the co-founder and CEO of Helium, which is a first mark portfolio company. Stick around. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Amir Halim is the CEO and co-founder of Helium. Prior to Helium, Amir served a long career in the video game industry as CTO at gaming startup Diversion and member of the original team behind Battlefield 1942 at DICE in Stockholm, Sweden. Outside of work, Amir is a former world champion esports gamer, co-founder of the popular esports community ESReality.com, and builds and races 90s Japanese sports cars. Amir, welcome to OK Computer. Amir, you've been quite the man of the week this week. Like a lot of successes, several years into being an overnight success, we've known each other for a long time. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, as they say in startup land, it was an overnight success and it became overnight 3,620 and 3,621 or whatever it was. I'm the founder CEO of Helium, big distributed decentralized wireless network play. And before this, I was a video game person. I spent a lot of my career in the video game world. I worked at a company called Dice. We built Battlefield 1942, which became this big video game franchise. And I just spent a lot of time in that universe before founding Helium. We've known each other for a long time, since way back when you were doing the seed and you were thinking about this in a very conceptual way before any of it came to pass and you had millions of routers anywhere. Just taking a step back, and I know a lot of people have heard about Helium, it's known as a real crypto project that's actually doing jobs and creating value in folks' lives. Take a step back and kind of explain for the parents out there or the boomers out there what exactly what you're doing. Best way of thinking about it is an economic designed for building wireless networks. Usually when people build wireless networks, it's large corporations, Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile, and they spend a whole bunch of money building the network. Kind of works okay in some cases. It causes a certain type of business model to be required. You need a lot of money up front. You need to charge people a lot of money to use the network to make your money back. 
And the idea of helium was we sort of theorized that people might want to do that rather than it being concentrated just on big corporations. What if we could design a system that did all the hard work for you, basically, right? So you became part of the economy of building a wireless network, and all you had to do was host the equipment. Every host on the Helium network is like a miniature cell tower operator, for want of a better word. And the entire economy is crypto-powered, as you mentioned, which is kind of a more recent development in Helium's history. We've already really been doing that for the last four or five years. There are close to 600,000 of these hotspots on the network, and hotspots are like miniature cell towers that are also crypto miners. There's another 3 million that have been ordered. So the network is growing at extremely high speed, and we're now looking at all sorts of other things that we can do with the same design. Like the first design for a network is an IoT network, so focused mostly on sensors and low-power things, but now starting to deploy a 5G network, so moving into the cellular domain, and then also looking at things like Wi-Fi 6. And I met with a company yesterday that's connecting wireless networks using lasers. There's all sorts of potential applications that can be done or that can be built this way. Think about the people out there. It could be anyone who's becoming that, as you said, distributed cell tower, including even my co-host here, Dan. (laughs) Dan, how did you come across Helium and what's your experience so far? Totally, Rick. Hey, Amir. I've been a miner of Helium since late 2019. I read Fred Wilson's blog post on it, and Rick and I spoke about it right afterwards, and he told me he was already an investor in the company. And to me, it just seemed like a layup. I was thinking about it more from a speculation standpoint, and I think that'll be a fun topic as we talk about what the utility that Helium Network actually provides to users. And it's a two-sided market, if you will. But then there's also a lot of people who are attracted to it because of the incentives. And I know know that we kind of referred a little bit to this New York Times piece by Kevin Roos, and he basically was describing the normie utility, solving problems that exist for people outside the crypto world. Let's take a step back. What was the problem that you guys were trying to solve before you actually started thinking about the incentives using crypto HNT, the token that you created? If you rewind back a decade, people had started to talk about the Internet of Things, which was supposed to be this ubiquitous world of sensors that are connected and monitoring everything. So there should no longer be wildfires and we shouldn't have droughts anymore. And pretty much everything should be solved. Rick knows he's been in the VC space such a long time. IoT was the thing 10 years ago. It was supposed to be one trillion sensors by now or whatever it was. And the problem that we saw was that there was no way to do any of that. You couldn't run these sensors on an existing mobile network because it was too expensive or there wasn't enough battery life for these sensors. You know, there was always a problem of some kind. And so that was the original problem statement for us. Could we build a wireless network designed for sensors? And how would we make it big and huge? And at the start, we honestly just didn't really know what we were doing in terms of how we would go and solve that problem. We had all sorts of theories about how it might work and why it might grow. And it wasn't really until 2016 or 2017 when we started to look at crypto. And I think I read the Filecoin white paper, which is the first time I had seen a real utility network. Filecoin was all about providing file storage rather than doing proof of work or whatever. And so that was sort of the path. But really, the problem statement hasn't changed from the start, which is how do you build this big wireless network for sensors? And crypto just became a really interesting tool to do that. And so Compared to a lot of stuff in the crypto space, that's a solution looking for a problem. This was actually a problem at the start, and we just turned out that crypto was the best way to solve it. And that's a lot of the great companies. You're really trying to do a job and really trying to solve a problem for real people. It's not speculation. I think Kevin put it well. This is real value for real people. 
as you know, all entrepreneurial stories, nothing is up and to the right. There's some blind alleys. There's some things that you get wrong, but you keep your eyes focused on the big prize. And you guys have continued to iterate and you're seeming like you're knocking on the door now. Far from up and to the right at all times. I mean, it's like a squiggly line that was headed downwards and to the left a lot of the time. And I think it matters a lot that you care about what you're doing and that your team cares about what you're doing as well. And if it wasn't for dedication and perseverance and stubbornness and also having excellent investors like you guys who are willing to be on that journey, I think a lot of less experienced investors would be frustrated by how long it took to get to this point. And that's a big part of it too, is having a group of people both on the investment and on the team side that are with you on the journey, I think matters a great deal. We've been doing this long enough to know that you're often wrong before you're right. And it's never a straight line. And as long as you have a team and the people you want to work with, you just keep your feet moving and eventually you'll get there. What's next? Now that you've exploded on the scene, are you just seeing massive demand for both the tokens as well as the hotspots? A few things next. Now that a network like this exists, we're starting to see the applications come that I was hoping we would see. And that's the slow part of the story. The hotspot growth is extraordinary, but it's also being driven by the movement of crypto in general. People are excited to mine tokens and they're excited to participate in building networks. And there's sort of an anti-telecom vibe about a lot of the users. I've not met anyone in the 10 years of doing this that likes any of the telecom companies. There are no AT&T fans out there. That's a classic story. Find a huge market that people hate their existing vendors. This is one of them. And so there's a big part of that, which I think is motivating for people who participate in it. And so we're now starting to see some of the applications get built. A lot of it was so stop-start in the IoT space. You had huge companies like UPS and FedEx and guys like this starting to build solutions for IoT. And then it's like, there's no network to use. How am I actually going to deploy this in the real world? How am I going to track packages if the network only exists in my depot or whatever? And so a lot of the best applications could never exist because there wasn't a big enough network that was cheap enough to use. And so now we're starting to see that. So I'm excited about the applications that are coming on one side, and then also excited about the stuff that comes next, like moving into cellular It's kind of amazing. Now you've got this perfect storm of things where there's unlicensed spectrum that we can use because usually that was a big deal. A small company can't afford to buy multi-billion dollar spectrum or whatever to operate a cell network. And so now there's, thanks to the FCC, open spectrum that we can use. Nearly all handsets in recent history, iPhones and Galaxies and everything support this unlicensed spectrum. So it's real now. You can actually build a cellular network, people-powered cellular network. And so really exciting to see that start to happen. I think 20,000 of those 5G hotspots have already been sold and are being deployed now. So starting to happen. That's the next phase. And then, like I said, I think Wi-Fi and other types of wireless network will come next. So Amir, you guys are tackling some very big technological issues, telco issues. These are massive incumbents, as you just described, but you're also building out a blockchain. The complexity of going down parallel paths with two technological problems, you guys have not gone with this proof of work algo for your blockchain. You're going with a proof of coverage. You think you have something new. We know that there's a lot of focus on what's going on with Ethereum going from a proof of work to a proof of stake. Talk to us through a little bit about that, how you think of the crypto rails. A lot of it is sort of timing based. The time that we started building this, which I think was early 2017, the only thing that you could really think about using was Ethereum. If you wanted to build on top of another platform, Ethereum was kind of it. And the problem already back then was that it was going to be too expensive to do that. Helium is a very complicated system. 
tons of transactions. The gas fees alone would have killed us unless we had come up with some really clever ways of doing stuff in batches or something like that. So by necessity, we started building our own layer one blockchain, as they would call it. And we were super friendly and still are with guys like Solana, who were also building solution at the time. And we were working in parallel but you know how it is. When you're a startup, you already have enough risk as it is without hitching your wagon to another startup. Would you do anything different if you were doing it today in 2022? If I were doing it today, I would try and build it on top of probably Solana. They've done such a great job of building not only a very fast blockchain, but also an ecosystem there that is excited about doing other stuff with tokens. And I think that's one of the coolest things about the crypto space, but also the thing that normies just do not understand what DeFi is and how all of that works. But today you earn HNT and you probably are just going to sell it or you're maybe going to hold it. And the DeFi ecosystem gives you a whole new playground, basically, for what you can do with tokens. You don't have to sell them. You can stake them and generate yield and lend them and do all sorts of other crazy things. And I think that ecosystem is fascinating. And so if we were to do it again, I think we would probably build it on top of something like Solana because it's possible and you would get exposure into that world. As you think about the normies out there and the use cases for Helium, what are some of the more fun or more interesting ways that people are consuming tokens today or projects that you're working with? IoT has always been a little bit B2B oriented. Some of the biggest use cases are still not consumer. We're working with the Department of Forestry, for example, who wants to do exactly what I was saying, a monitor for wildfires, which where I live is a big deal. There are starting to be more consumer use cases. So there are now pet trackers, for example, so the Fitbit for dogs model. There's a connected rat trap, which sounds kind of silly until you realize that like, okay, well, Disney uses hundreds of thousands of these things in theme parks because they can't have dead rats sitting there. So some of the use cases are stealthy. They don't sound that exciting until you realize the scale of them is absolutely enormous. But I think we're still early in figuring out what the best consumer applications are. It sort of reminds me of the iPhone when it first came out. You had an app universe, but it was empty. People hadn't figured out that you could build like a glucose monitor or whatever. It feels like that's where we are with IoT. Now you can actually build the stuff, which is small and cheap and can sense anything anywhere. Small and cheap, low power, low bandwidth. You've created a whole ecosystem around yourself. Yeah. And so people are now, I think, starting to figure that out and people are starting to build interesting things. It's just the timeline for that when you're in the hardware realm is long. It's going to be 12 to 24 months before we see the best applications come out. And that's the most annoying part in terms of being patient. You're doing everything you can to see this ecosystem and try and make it thrive. But you also know that it just takes time for some of the stuff to materialize. You just mentioned hardware, a lot of manufacturers of hardware having trouble getting access to chips. So on both sides, are are you seeing IoT deployment in any of these different use cases that you just mentioned? Have we seen that slow down a little bit over the last couple of years? And then also, I bought a router, like I said, back in 2019. And when you guys launched a new one with another partner, maybe over a year ago, I put an order in for one and I didn't get it for months. How has that hampered the growth of your network? It definitely has. I think there's 3 million of these things that have been ordered and only close to 600,000 that have been deployed. So minimally, that's the backlog. People wanted 3 million and they could only get hold of 600,000. It's taken two and a half years to get the 600,000 out there. It definitely has hurt. The network would be a lot bigger. Conversely, it had an unintended effect, which was that early participants made a lot of money and that caused a lot of excitement in the universe because the network was relatively smaller and it was not planned that way by any means, but it did have that effect where I think people were excited to participate in the ecosystem because they saw what other people were doing. 
we're still in it. It hasn't resolved fully yet. People are still having a hard time. There's 65 different vendors now building hotspots in Helium, and they're still having a hard time getting hold of components, as are the people building the sensors. It's fine if you need 50 or 100 to prototype. And people are always asking, well, it's not that hard to buy a Raspberry Pi. I can just buy one on Amazon. And yeah, sure. But when you need 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000, then the story is completely different and it becomes almost impossible to get hold of these things. You mentioned the term community, and obviously that is part of this Web3 ethos in a way. There have been any big enterprises or there have been any locales, whether it be cities or counties or states that have looked to partner with you to deploy your network? We have several. We worked with the city of San Jose, for example, who's doing a big deployment. I think we have about a dozen of those that are similar to that, where they're looking at deploying helium for different applications or different use cases. I think the city of Palo Alto is another one. And I think some of the more forward-looking cities and municipalities are figuring out what can be done and starting to do things there. On the usage side, there's all sorts of bizarre use cases that we've seen. Salesforce is doing employee badge tracking, for example, this way, which is not one that I ever would have expected. It's really all over the place. And one of the other unexpected consequences was that other LoRa networks, so LoRa is the underlying technology that we use. We use this thing called LoRaWAN, which is this network protocol. And there are other LoRaWAN networks that are usually smaller in scale or regional. And they've started to partner with Helium to like roam onto the network. They can extend their coverage area and take advantage of the fact that Helium is basically everywhere. And so that's become a really interesting way for the network to grow. So we partnered with Actility, for example, which is this IoT company based in Europe. And their customers are people like Costco and Toyota and Volvo and major corporations that just need more network coverage. We didn't expect that to happen, but it has worked out kind of nicely. And so starting to partner with more of those networks in this network of networks effect, because they've done all the hard work of acquiring the customers and figuring out the use cases, and they just need more network coverage. As you think about not only the hotspots you have in place, but the backlog, what is your network coverage and how would that compare to an AT&T network or a known network today? For IoT, it is by far the largest network in the world. Someone told me it's also the largest contiguous wireless network that's ever been created, where it's the same network everywhere in the world. So that's really cool. Hard to know, honestly. We don't have perfect visibility into what the coverage areas always look like. Someone said the other day that it was either 30 or 40% of US zip codes have helium coverage now, which is kind of staggering. I don't know if that's true. Someone said that, and I just believe them for now because it sounds cool. The coverage is, I think, in major cities, especially in the US, it's pretty massive, probably the same in Western Europe, and starting to grow in their areas, especially in Asia, and starting to see a lot of interest in Africa now as well. Yeah, you seem to have fixed a problem that maybe some other crypto projects have not been able to do, and that's really user interface. You've obviously built a community. I read in the New York Times article, you have a huge Discord community. But when I think about from the first days that I hooked up the network, understanding what it's there to do, understanding how I am incentivized and those tokens, how I accumulate them and what I can do with them, that's been something that's been really easy. And so I think the real world connectivity with the service that you're providing, but then me as a miner on the other side of it and what I can do with the tokens and how I can hold on to them is really interesting. Have you guys had a specific focus on user interface? 
the most important thing for us, honestly, was getting that right. We realized that if this was going to grow big, it had to be extremely easy to use. I think we probably have one of the oldest communities in terms of average age of participant. It's a very different audience than the typical crypto project. These are not the Bored Ape guys and they're not the Defy guys. It's a very different universe of people, which is good and bad. On the bad side, we're not part of that bigger movement of Defy and crypto yet. But on the plus side, we've introduced hundreds of thousands of people that probably would never have gotten involved in the crypto space. But I think the user interface was a huge part of that, like making it a thing that you just plug in and you use an app to set up and it feels like setting up an Echo or a HomePod or whatever, and not trying to set up an Antminer, figure out how to get yield on an obscure token or something. None of that. I think the user interface of crypto in general is still really, really bad outside of the custodians like Coinbase and guys like that who do a good job. Well, I think it'll matter in the long run that you're more stake than sizzle. You have people who are coming to do real jobs than some obscure uh, speculation. There's some really cool stuff out there. It's obscured in bizarre language and difficult user interface, but there's some really interesting stuff. And I think we're already starting to see that mature, especially in like the Solana ecosystem. Those guys also seem to be very focused on good user interfaces. As you said, I think it's going to matter a great deal in the long run. Do you see, Amir, great demand when your HNT token is ripping versus when it's come in? Obviously, it seems very well correlated to the big layer ones. And also, when I look at coin market cap, you're in a nice little bucket there. It's Filecoin, it's Axie Infinity. I think some protocols that people think are very useful, as we discussed over the last 20 minutes. So I'm just curious, give us a sense for that, because I know that on the creator coin side, there's a lot of people who are really leery of the idea of fans buying into something that could appreciate but it also goes the opposite way if it were to crash. I'm just curious how you guys think about that a little bit. Honestly, we try and stay out of it as much as we can. One of the things that Kevin wrote in the article, which is very much the case, is that we don't allow any sort of price discussion on the Discord server. We have this massive Discord community. It's like 150,000 people. And it's got to be one of the only ones in crypto where you can't talk about price. And I think it's actually helped because it's kept the conversation on topic and people are there to learn and improve and complain or do whatever it is that they want to do. Someone very smart said to me, in crypto, the price is the news. And I think that is absolutely true. If you look at Bitcoin, it's really all anyone talks about and cares about for the most part. And so certainly when the price of HNT goes up and the crypto market is ripping the way it does sometimes, people get more excited and they get more interested. There's no doubt about that correlation. It's just not something that we try and facilitate. Like it just sort of happens and we stay out of it, but it definitely exists. It's kind of like watching your stock price. Although it's interesting, it's oftentimes just a distraction. The only thing I was going to say about that is that every CEO, publicly traded CEO that I know says they don't watch their stock price, but I know they all watch the stock price. And I know that their employees all watch the stock price. So I guess it's really hard. I just do think that it's a very different situation, though, that you have here because your whatever the equivalent of your stock price is actually particularly useful as part of the network there. So there's other value to it than just speculation. It's also one of these difficult things because you're in this unknown space in terms of the regulatory regime. And so you can't really get into it in terms of price and doing anything to try and improve the price. You know, like we stay away from the whole topic of price of HNT completely. And so it's a little bit different from stocks where you completely understand the regulatory framework you're operating in doesn't stop people from doing whatever they want, Elon Musk style and ending up in trouble, but you at least know that you're going to get in trouble. Whereas in crypto, you're still not exactly sure where the boundaries are for certain things. So yeah, it's one of these things where you definitely look at it, but there's not really a whole lot you can do to influence it. And even if there was, we wouldn't do it. So it's just there. 
No shilling on the Helium Discord. Well, you just mentioned what's next. I do think it's interesting that you started out really focused on IoT. And at the time, you said that was like a very buzzy thing. And I know from being a public market tech investor, we saw lots of M&A in the semi-space and related networking business around that maybe five years or so ago. But now you're moving into, at the time, you guys were saying, and I think in the New York Times article, it mentioned you guys were not for phones, you were not for laptops, but you're moving into, I think, the things that a lot of consumers on an everyday basis might start to see the benefit of a wider area network, a faster 5G network. So is that where a lot of your focus is right now? Yeah, it has been. A lot of fortunate things happened at the same time. The FCC unlicensed the spectrum that we can use. Guys like Facebook have been building open source cellular protocol stacks that we can use because that was the other complicated part of the equation was that LTE is a ridiculously complicated protocol and only Nokia and Ericsson and Huawei have any idea how to implement it properly. There's a lot of stuff coming together at the right time. And crypto obviously booming and the success of Helium so far makes it all possible for us to now do this. Ridiculously excited about how that might go. And we announced this thing with Dish a few months ago. So Dish is going to start using the cellular network when it becomes available and starts to get big. And consumers may or may not even realize they're using the Helium network. They may just appear to be an AT&T subscriber and they're just roaming onto Helium without even knowing it and never even seeing it the way you do inside an airport or inside a sports arena. Like You don't really know that you've handed off to someone else's network. It appears that you're still on AT&T. And I think that's how this is going to work for the most part is that you're going to be on Dish's network and sometimes you'll be using someone's hotspot because there's better coverage in that area and sometimes you won't and you will never know. To me, that's really exciting and allows a network to get built in a completely different way. There's going to be coverage in areas where it never made sense to go deploy a cell tower. And so... Super excited to see how that works out. And then, like I said, we're starting to see Wi-Fi mesh networks. Like These guys I met with yesterday are meshing Wi-Fi networks together with lasers on top of buildings, which is never even heard of that before, but incredibly cool. So I think Helium has sparked a little bit of renaissance inside the wireless or telecom industry because there's now a model that works for doing this. Some of the best technologies are like magic. You don't realize you're using them, but all of a sudden they work and it's like magic for the end user. And then as you build out that helium ecosystem, you know, enabling the next generation of innovation with the guys with the lasers. You're helping the legacy players extend their network like AT&T, and you're really thinking about what's going to be built on you in the future. It's an incredible technology, and it's really amazing. And, and the entrepreneurial story, we're probably going to have to have you on again to come back with that. But one last question before we go, what advice do you have out there for other entrepreneurs who are working through a project, have a grand vision, but sometimes it doesn't feel like a straight line? Definitely not a straight line. I always end up reading that chapter from Ben Horowitz's Hard Thing About Hard Things book, which is called The Struggle. And it's always a helpful thing to read that you're not the only one that's dealing with the fact that it's not going the way you thought it was going to go. And firstly, you've got to really be into what you're going to do because it's so difficult at times that if you don't really love what you're trying to solve, then it's too hard to persevere. But perseverance, at least for us, was really the thing. We knew that what we were trying to do was correct and no one else really believed us very much. And so you've got to have a lot of conviction and be certain that what you're doing is a problem to be solved. And then how you do it ends up being variable, but you've got to be irrationally convinced that you're doing the right thing, I think. That's great advice. That irrational conviction is in the heart of every great entrepreneur. So we appreciate you having us along for that journey. As investors, we appreciate your long-term friendship. And thanks for your time today for all the OK Computer listeners. Look forward to having you on in the future as you guys take the next steps. 
look forward to it. And thanks for having me. And thanks for joining us on this journey as investors. It's been great. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.